Well, friends, we're starting a new sermon series today, a series in the parables of Jesus. This is the first of seven sermons. So this is a, it's a topical series in one sense, but it's a series of expositions of the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, I've chosen seven of them. The way this kind of started, Mackenzie and I in the office, we made a long list of a number of different parables and then sought to narrow that list down to give us a relatively representative sample set from different gospel writers told in different settings and different contexts. So that hopefully is what this series will be. The parables of Jesus are familiar to many. For some, you may have even grown up hearing them. Or if you were like me, you grew up watching like McGee and Me videos or VeggieTales or whatever those are that you might have watched that would depict for you in various ways the parables of Christ. I saw a few smiles on the McGee and Me. I haven't thought about that in about 25 years, maybe 30 years, and I did this week. I thought about the one on the Good Samaritan. But even though they're familiar, the parables of Christ, have we rightly understood them? It's a legit question to ask. What are the parables? What are they for? What is their purpose? Also good questions. The Hebrew word for parable, mashal, has a range of meanings. It could refer to a story or an illustration. It could refer to a word picture or even to a wise saying. And we see all of those in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The series title, it's kind of long, a little punchy for us, I guess, Parables, Mirrors, Hammers, and More Than Reality, or excuse me, More Than Morality, Mirrors, Hammers, and More Than Morality. Mirrors, what would that convey? It would convey that the parables of Christ show us what's really going on, particularly the parables of Christ show us what's really going on as it pertains to the kingdom of God. The parables of Christ are mirrors also in that they show us ourselves as we really are. They show us our hearts. They show us our sinfulness. Hammers. The parables of Christ smash self-righteousness. They're meant to do that. They crush pride and notions of merit before God. More than morality. Well, the parables of Christ are far more than being about behavior modification. Any good Muslim or any good Mormon teacher could work on those things. The parables of Christ are far more than teaching on how to be a good person. There are plenty of people who could teach on such things. Ultimately, the parables serve in their primary sense, their primary use, to drive us to the one who is telling them. To put the onus on us to trust, to believe, and to hope in Christ. In all of this, as you're listening, I hope you see, in all of this, the parables of Christ contain God's law and God's gospel. We should read the parables this way. So my hope, my prayer for the seven sermon series, it'll come and go quickly. It's a time of year when people are in and out of town. There's a lot going on. My hope and prayer is that we enjoy the time in the parables of Christ, that we marvel at Jesus, how he spoke, how he taught. Truly, no one ever spoke like this man. And... I pray that this time is used to the end that our faith would be strengthened. To the end that we would be grown and matured in Christ. To the end that we be grown in wisdom and in understanding of the Christian life. So with all that by way of introduction to today's message and to the series itself, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. 
If you don't have a Bible with you, do we have the words on the screen today or no? We do not. All right. So there are a few Bibles, I think, provided for you in the chairs. You can look and find some of those black ESV copies. You will be helped. You can also open the Bible up on your phone. You'll be helped to follow along. We're beginning the series with this parable on purpose, or a series of parables, really, in Mark chapter 4. And the reasoning for that, I trust, will become clear as we even read it out loud and as we look at it today together. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34. So before we get into it, I'm going to read it for us. This is the Word of God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If, anything ha if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. So I have five points, five headings for us, and then a very brief conclusion. Five points and a brief conclusion. Some of these titles are 
less than creative, and you'll forgive me for that. Point one, the parable of the sower. There we have that. Point one, the parable of the sower. We're going to look at verses one to nine of Mark chapter four for a few moments. Now, I just read the parable. Jesus is going to later in the text explain the parable. So I'm just going to save a lot of the comment on the parable itself for the second point. So I'm not just repeating myself over and over. And you say, thank you for that, brother. Yes. For our purposes now in point one, put yourself in the place of the people hearing this. In what we have recorded for us in Mark's gospel, Jesus does not give a lengthy introduction to this material. He doesn't introduce it. He doesn't say, all right, look, I'm about to tell you a parable about how the kingdom of God works. He doesn't say that. He just starts to tell a story about a farmer who sows seed liberally. Some of it falls on the path. Birds eat it. Some of it falls on rocky soil, sprouts up for a time and dies. Some of it falls on thorny soil, starts to grow, gets choked by the thorns. Some of it falls on good soil and bears fruit. Then he says, in perhaps the most cryptic way possible, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as we continue to read, not only just Mark 4, what you heard today, but as you continue to read like the rest of the gospel account, it seems that not many people did have ears to hear. And even the 12... And those who were with the 12, the kind of smaller group within the crowd, even they, it becomes quite clear, kind of like, yeah, we don't know what that means. So that's point one, just kind of setting it up, right? Point two, Jesus explains things to his disciples. Point two, Jesus explains things to his disciples. We're going to look at verses 10 to 20. At this point, you can see in verse 10, it says Jesus is alone. When he was alone, those around him with the 12. So that's the setting here. Away from the crowd, small, intimate group. We're not told exactly how many, but probably not more than a couple dozen people-ish. A few dozen people max, right? That's the setting. So they ask him about the parables. They didn't understand. Jesus, help us out. What does this mean? So then he starts to answer them. And in verses 11 and 12, this is wild where he starts. He's going to answer the question effectively, why is it that he is teaching in parables to begin with? Like, let's back the truck up a little bit. And you're asking me about this specific parable. I'm going to talk to you first about why I even speak this way. He makes it quite plain that there are those who have been given the secret to the kingdom of God. I mean, people sitting with him and talking with him at this moment. And then there are those who are outside, to use his language. Those who have been given the secret to the kingdom of God will have everything explained to them, he says. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And he even goes on to say that this is in fulfillment of words penned by the prophet Isaiah, that those outside would see but not perceive, would hear but not understand, and therefore would not turn and be forgiven. Let's acknowledge a few things here. We're starting to wade into waters that are very deep, and these things are above us. Amen? They are. When we try to say too much about this stuff, we inevitably mess it up. But this much is clear. Beloved, the Lord saves his people. That's clear. He reveals himself to his people and makes himself known to his people. He does this, this is important, he does this definitively through the person and work of Jesus Christ being explained and extolled to us. 
And it is this word, this word of Christ, to use the language of Romans 10, in the power of God that opens up hearing. The word of Christ is the means that the Lord God uses to open ears so that we might hear. The Spirit of God inhabits this word and gives God's people ears to hear. As I've already stated, these things are above us. But here is where, this is me talking for us, I'm a pastor of this church, I'm one of the members here, for us. This is where our hearts and our minds should go when we start to read of these realities. Isaac Watts wrote these words. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. In other words, where we go with this, we don't understand it in full. We trust God that he saves his people. And we ask with humility, why did he save me? And then we sing and we speak and we live with gratitude. Thank you, Father that you saved me. Saints, we trust Christ because God has given us that faith. We confess that regularly from our confession. This faith is not of themselves. It is the gift of God. We were blind like the rest of mankind and he has given us sight. We were deaf like the rest of mankind, and he has given us ears to hear. We were dead like the rest of mankind, and by nature children of wrath. But he has made us alive together with Christ. We weren't better. We were not more upright. We were not more enlightened in our thinking. We were not seekers for God. We were, as people say these days, like you do you, we were doing us like the rest of the world. We did not deserve this great salvation. And here's the thing, we still don't. You understand that. It's all grace. None of this is merit. Christ's merit given to you. That's what this is. Given to me. May we boast in him. And may we be astonished by this love and this grace and this mercy. Put your eyes on verse 13. Jesus here, he asks this question, do you not understand this parable? And then another one, how are you going to understand them all? If you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand them all? So what he's getting at here, he's hinting at what parables are and how they function. So his point here is not that the parable of the sower is the parable of all parables. That's not really a, a great way to understand what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying is that this parable is emblematic of all the other parables. They are like it in how they function, in how they work, and in their purpose. The parables of Jesus all reflect and communicate the principles of the kingdom of God, including how the kingdom of God is established in the world. This parable is obvious in that way. It's about the kingdom of God and these realities that are greater than any other reality. And he's teaching us how it is that God builds his kingdom, what this means for us. All the other parables are like that. The parables of Christ describe, as I said in the introduction, they describe things as they really are. Sometimes Jesus is going to use them to point out in his day what's really going on in Israel. He came 
from Israel, right? He's born a Jew. He came first to Jews and taught them and spoke and preached and healed and did all these things. And he uses parables sometimes to point out, here is the state of things in Israel. Sometimes he uses the parables to point out things that have been happening in Israel for centuries, like the parable of the tenants that we'll get to later in this series. He uses the parables to teach redemptive history in that sense. Christ's parables contain truth about salvation and judgment. They contain truth about law and promise. And here's the thing. They are always aimed at the hearts of men and women. To crush self-confidence and self-righteousness. To crush entitlement and notions of earning things before God. They are way more than morality tales, which brings us to the parable explained, beginning in verse 14 through 20. Jesus is going to unpack, in particular, having front-loaded it with all that, he's going to now explain the parable of the sower to his followers. Relatively simple. You're familiar with this. Many in the room are. Effectively, what we have is this. There's a sower sowing seed, and he says the seed is the word. The seed, in that sense, is the good news. We could understand it as the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It's that seed. It's being sown liberally. And then there are four kinds of soil that it falls on. In other words, there are four kinds of hearers of the word. You have the path, which he says... We get this. The path is hard. It's a hard pan. When the seeds hit it, don't take root. Immediately the birds of the air come and eat it up. He says what that is illustrating is the fact that the evil one, the enemy, immediately comes and snatches the word when so many people hear it. That's pretty clear to us. We've seen that before. Then he talks about the rocky soil. These are... The way I might like to frame it is these are the sparkle and fade types. The really passionate for a season like a bottle rocket and then just kind of crashes back down to earth. Passionate and then punt the faith. We've seen this before too. Maybe it's a revival meeting. Maybe it's a youth camp. Maybe it's a a service at some church somewhere where you walk the aisle, you pray the prayer, you do the thing, and for a few months, at least a few weeks, geeked up about Jesus and the things of God. And if we're honest, people like that, frustrated with everybody else that they're not as passionate. What's wrong with you? But then difficulties arise. Could be trial, could be suffering, could be persecution on account of the faith, could be any of that. And the faith is no longer so dear. The passion has burnt out. Then comes the thorny soil. This one is slightly different. The cares of the world, riches and desires. So rather than it being difficulty, suffering, pain, persecution, these are pleasurable things. They come in and choke out the word. These people here, there's, again, a good response initially, perhaps for a season of time, But then these other things come in and choke the word so that it does not bear fruit in these individuals' lives. Over time, as Christ doesn't return, life presents you with other things to put your hope in. Over time, as Christ doesn't return, life presents you with other things to find your joy in. Over time, As Christ doesn't return, life presents you with other things to put your trust in. It's true. And you go that way. That's thorny soil. Then finally, the good soil. Very simply, these are people, they hear, they receive, they believe, they continue to believe and bear fruit over a lifetime. So now the the thing that's important for us to do is to apply this parable. To apply it to our hearts and our minds. 
I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I think a lot of times we can, I think this has probably always been true, but certainly true in our day in the church. We read this and we come away with a high level of concern about being a certain kind of soil. Or we come away, perhaps worse, with a high level of concern about what kind of soil other people are. And we ask this question, all right, clearly we want to be good soil, that's true. But then we ask, well, how do we become good soil? That's the thing. We don't. That's where, again, this is above us. We were not born good soil. That's clear. Nobody was born good soil in Adam. We don't make ourselves good soil because, beloved, that is God's work. It's all of him. It's all of grace. The only way that we would have hearts that would love and receive the word of Christ, the only way that we would keep trusting, the only way that we would ever pursue righteousness and flee from sin and bear fruit over a lifetime is if God makes it so. Psalm 40, verse 6. Don't turn, just write it down if you want. This is a huge verse in understanding a lot of things, I think, but very significant for what we're talking about right now. The psalmist writes, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Literally rendered, you have done this. God, you have given me ears that you have dug out for me. It's a good image. God digs our ears out so that we might hear. That's how a person is good soil. Realize this and remember this when you're trying to apply this parable. Jesus is telling it, the parable, to explain how the kingdom of God works. He is telling people what they can expect even as the kingdom of God, the church, is built, right? And what they can expect as they're involved in that work. Because see, as Christ ascended and the Holy Spirit came and the church is established, we are now the sowers of the word. We're involved through the sowing of the word. We get to be involved in the building of God's church. He builds it, we're involved. And this is how it will go a lot of times. That's what Christ is doing here. Is this not how it goes? We've seen this before. Anyone who's been in the church for any length of time has seen the things that Jesus is depicting in this parable take place. So you may ask, okay, brother, as I'm walking out of here today, and if I'm thinking about the parable of the sower this week, what is it that we ought to concern ourselves with? Mark 3.35, the verse right before chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's a setting there where Jesus' mother and brothers come to find him. They don't yet fully understand everything he's teaching, everything he's doing. And Jesus is teaching a group of people. He's notified that his mother and his brothers are there. And then he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He looks around at everybody sitting there. And he says, here, here is my family. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God, whoever does the works of God, where else does he talk about that? In John chapter 6, you remember he's also talking to a Jewish audience, and they ask him, point blank, what must we do? This is John 6, 28 and following. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, close quote. He goes on later to say, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So our primary concern 
as we think about the parable of the sower, don't wig out over what kind of soil, this, that, and the other. The main question is, do we believe this word? Ask yourself that. Do I, do we believe the word of Christ? That he is who he says he is. God who took on flesh to fulfill the law for his people. God who took on flesh to die the death his people deserve. Do we believe that? Do we believe that after having laid his life down, he was put in the ground and got up for our justification so that we might be declared righteous before God as his sacrifice was vindicated? Do we believe that he conquered the one who has the power of death, namely the devil, to set free all of those who live in bondage to the fear of death? Do we believe that? Do we believe that he is coming back to get us? He's prepared a place for us. And he said, I wouldn't have done that unless I was coming back for you. Do we believe that? That's the first question. You say, okay, yes, I believe. I believe that Christ is everything that I need now and forever to stand before God because all of the righteous requirements of God are met in him and I've been given that. Yes, I believe that. God did that for us. Now what? All right. Here are some other things underneath that main question that we would concern ourselves with. How are we going to keep believing this? That's huge. I believe it. How am I going to keep believing it? Because my heart is fickle. My flesh is weak. I'm prone to unbelief. There are a million things that distract me. How? We begin, quite simply, by determining that we're going to be here. That we're going to live life in a community of believers like this one. For members of Covenant Baptist Church, this one. We're going to keep showing up Lord's Day after Lord's Day. We're going to keep coming, regardless of how we feel, Regardless of how excited we may be, regardless of how many people are out sick that Sunday, we're going to come to hear the word of Christ. We're going to come to receive him in the word. We're going to come to feed on Christ by faith in his table. We're going to participate in the body and blood of Christ through the bread that we break and the cup that we drink. We're going to come together to pray and to sing of what God has done for us. That's why we don't sing a lot of songs here, by the way, that have anything to do with us. We don't sing a lot of songs that start in the first person. We sing songs about him, what he's done. We come and live life in this community of people together in the fellowship of the saints all week long. We confess sin to one another. We encourage one another in this life. We encourage one another in the battle against the flesh because sometimes it's hard. We invite correction. There's one. We live lives where we invite people to correct us and we lovingly correct others. We bear burdens. We weep with people. We sit in it with people. Not trying to fix it. We sit there. We rejoice together. We walk together in life. And then we're going to keep praying for ourselves and others that God would help our unbelief. That he would give us grace for our faith. That he would give us grace to run hard after righteousness and grace to flee from sin. That's what we're going to do. It's what we need to do. We will not do it alone. We'll do it together. We say it all the time. We cling to one another as we all cling to Christ. We do all of this with confidence and certainty in the faithfulness of our God because, perhaps this is obvious, we're confident that God saves, he converts, he regenerates, yes, he sanctifies, he glorifies, he keeps. We trust that because, even in the parable, the good soil does not become rocky. The good soil does not become thorny. It's good soil. And God made it so. 
Those who have been united to Christ will be kept by him unto salvation. So all of this, lengthy point two, the way that Jesus speaks in this passage, the things that we're considering is consistent with the entire revelation of Scripture. And it's consistent with our confession. Where we confess that God chose Jesus to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. Amen. Point three. Point three is lamps and listening. Lamps and listening from verses 21 to 25. Now it seems, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 4, that a larger audience is in view again. Jesus is going to use this language of, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, like he said to the crowd in verse 9. That's a key. And in verses 33 and 34, kind of putting a bow on this whole thing, indicate that Jesus was speaking in parables in public and then explaining things in private to his disciples. So as he begins again to speak in parables, and as he begins again to say, if you've got ears to hear, hear it, it seems clear that a larger group is in view. So, verse 21, rhetorical question. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Of course not. It's absurd. Who would do such a thing? Of course a lamp is to be put on a stand so it can light up the room which is what Jesus is effectively communicating in verse 22. Exactly. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So what's he talking about? Lamps and baskets and beds and stands and all that. What's he talking about? Things being hidden and made manifest and things being secret and coming to light. He's talking about himself, saints. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the fact that it has come in him. In other words, the lamp in the context is Christ and the message about him. John 1, in him was life and the life was the what? Light of men. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Ephesians 3, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Romans 16, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations to bring about the obedience of faith. That is what he's talking about. So here we are again. I'm not going to take a long time on this. But here we are again. Like if you ever question some of the things that we say about Jesus being the point of Scripture and being the center of God's plan of redemption and everything that God would ever do, here is yet another piece of evidence that this is so. He shows up and he starts to talk these ways. Think of all the things that are revealed in the Old Testament. Consider then the coming of Christ, who is the light With his coming and with the writings of the apostles, quite literally, family, the light switch is flipped on. And we can now, in a way that was not true before Christ came, we can now see the furniture. We see it. The light of Christ shines back on the entire Old Testament. And it's like, man, I see everything. That's what he's talking about. The promise made in the garden of a a seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. We know who that is. The Passover and what that was meant to communicate to the people of Israel. We know what that was about. We know why it even happened in the first place, because he was coming. 
The manna that came down from heaven to feed God's people as they sojourned in the wilderness. We know what that was about because Jesus told us, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died, but I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. The law. There are reasons why God gave the law. And we understand in a primary sense that the law was given, Galatians 3, Romans 5, to increase the trespass, to crush us in our sin, that we might look to the Savior who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The sacrificial system, we know what that was about. The blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. They pointed to the sacrifice that would. The priesthood in general, they died. You needed new priests all the time because they couldn't endure forever. But he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has attained his priesthood by the power of an indestructible life. And because he lives forever, he always lives to make intercession for his own. We know what the priesthood was about. I could go on. The day of atonement. The one who would take our sin upon himself and be killed for it. And the one who would take our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. The scapegoat. The serpent. The bronze serpent that's raised up by Moses in the wilderness. When people are getting bit by snakes and dying, Moses fashions this bronze serpent and lifts it up. And the Lord says, whenever anybody looks to this, they will live. So Christ says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, I too must be lifted up. Family, we can see what it was about. That's what he's saying. I just, I can't go on without saying this one too. The rock from Exodus 17, you know, when Moses hits the rock and water comes from it. Just read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4 sometime. Paul would get an F in most hermeneutics classes and seminaries today. It's a sad indictment on things, but it's true. Where Paul says the rock was Christ. The, the water gave people life. That was Christ, he says. You say that now, and people are like, ah, oh, brother, I don't know, that wasn't the original authority intent. Anyway, that's for another day. For another day. All right. So you see, family, the lamp that illuminates everything else is Christ. The plan of God becomes clear when Jesus shows up. Verse 24. Jesus says to his disciples effectively and to everybody listening, to the crowd, listen closely to what I'm saying. Pay attention. Consider it. Do you receive this? Do you believe this? For those who listen and consider and hear and receive the word Jesus is speaking, more will be added to them. Makes sense. For those who receive, hear, believe, more is added. More is given. We continue to grow in our understanding. It's true. We continue to experience more of the goodness and blessing of God in Christ. It's true. For those who receive the word of Christ in faith, more will be given, namely eternal life and blessedness. But for those who do not receive the word of Christ in faith, but instead reject it, even what they have will be taken away. It's true. Point four. I'm going to do these briefly because I care for you. Number four, the parable of the growing seed. Verses 26 to 29. Jesus is going to go on and talk about in parable form. He's going to talk about the kingdom of God and how it will grow through the seed that's sown. In verses 26 and 7, the farmer sows seed. He goes to sleep at night, gets up in the morning, the seed's growing and it's sprouting, and the farmer does not fully know what happens. He doesn't understand all the intricate processes that take place to make that occur. Verse 28, the earth produces the crop by itself. Automate is the word. We know what that means. Automatically. And then verse 29, the farmer understands this. He gets up, he goes to sleep, he gets up, he sees it growing, and he puts the sickle in when it's time to harvest. That's what he does. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. What's he communicating? Two big things. One, the seed, which is the word of God, the word of Christ, always does its work. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, where the Lord says that just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it forth, grow forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, 
but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word will do the work. Second thing he's communicating. When it comes to the kingdom of God, only God can make things grow. Only God can build the kingdom of God. It's pretty straightforward. It's his power, none other than the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's his word. You know he's always created by his word. He made the world by his word. The valley of dry bones, Ezekiel 37. Prophesy, son of man, prophesy to the bones. And they live. Lazarus laying in the tomb in John 11. Lazarus come out. The words that gave the command. The one who gave the command gave the life. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are made alive as we hear the word of Christ. We sow the word. We herald Christ. We extol the mercy and love and power and sufficiency of Christ. And God builds the house and fruit is born and we don't fully know how it happens, but we see it. Salvation is of the Lord. And we rejoice in that. Point five. The parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the mustard seed. Verses 30 to 34. So in verse 30, we see that Jesus is continuing to teach on the kingdom of God. Common theme throughout all of these parables today. And then in verses 31 and 2, he says that the kingdom of God is like a grain of a mustard seed. When it's sown in the garden, it's incredibly small. Yet, when it grows, it becomes quite large. Larger than all the other garden plants, as a matter of fact. And the birds of the air come and they nest in its shade. Think about the kingdom of God. God chose Israel. God loved Israel. God covenanted with Israel, with the goal of saving the nations through the Christ who would come from Israel. That Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended. He sent his Holy Spirit. His apostles began to preach him for sinners. And the church was founded. His ministers have been preaching him for sinners ever since. And in the eyes of the world, this has never looked like much. Still doesn't. Still doesn't. When the word goes out, when the seed is sown, often the entire thing looks very small, unimpressive, weak, foolish even. We've read that before. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's good to understand Scripture with Scripture. It's good to see 
how beautifully consistent God's revelation is. And even now, saints, we see the nations, the birds of the air, coming to find shade in the branches of this tree called the kingdom of God. We have come. And one day we'll stand in the midst of a multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And we'll all be standing there clothed in white robes that have been washed and made white in the blood of the Savior. And we'll cry out that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's sown, it's small, looks like nothing, but it ends in that. That's what Jesus is saying. So the parables of Christ, what can we say about them? Well, they are not a Christian version of Aesop's fables for us to read them, think about them, and learn a few moral tips and how we can be better. They're not morality tales. They're not Jesus looking at us and saying, you know, you need to do better. Do better. That's what God requires of you. They are about realities of the kingdom of God. They're about God's law and God's gospel. And as we move into this series further in weeks to come, just go ahead and have this in your minds, beloved, as you come to service. Whenever we're going to be looking at one of these parables, we should hear these parables and we should think he was talking about me. That's what we should think. Not talking about other people. He was talking about me. So secondarily, given that, secondarily, yes, I'm going to strive to live better according to God's law. I'm going to strive to love my neighbor better. I'm going to strive to live in a more sacrificial way. I'm going to strive to forgive my brothers and sisters more eagerly. I'm going to strive to forgive more joyfully. You fill in the blank. You should take that away. And primarily, given that I know he's talking about me, my takeaway from the parables of my Savior is that I need him. I need his righteousness. I need the forgiveness that's only found in him. I need absolution from guilt that is only found in him. So saints, today and every Lord's day, let's look to him. Because he said, everyone who believes in me is doing the works of God. And this is my Father's will, that whoever believes in me should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. May it be. Let's pray.